Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast on the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all Future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is God's word. You may be seated. Lord, as we look to your word this morning, we see things that don't make sense. See strange laws, and we're wondering what on earth this has to do with us. So, Lord, show us. By your Spirit's power, give us ears to hear Christ speaking through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we saw last week. At the end of the flood, the six days of the new creation. Remember, they were unfolding alongside the story of the first creation. 
We have the spirit over the waters, the waters above and the waters below separating, the dry land emerging, vegetation growing, birds going out, just like in the first creation. And then finally, on the 27th day of the month, which was a Friday, the sixth day, the animals and the humans are going out of the ark. And now we have arrived in our text this morning at the seventh day. Now in the first creation, in Genesis 1 and 2, the seventh day was the day of rest. Remember, that was the establishment of the Sabbath rest. Our Genesis 8 new creation passage acknowledges this day of rest. And how, how is it acknowledged? With worship. You see that in verse 20? The first thing Noah does when he gets off the ark is build an altar to worship God. Look at verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now, burnt offerings means he, they're burned all up. Noah doesn't eat any of that. That's all, it's all for the Lord. Then in verse 21, the Lord smells what, what Moses, the, the, the author here, says is a pleasing aroma. What's happening here? That that word pleasing to us, we read that, and our first instinct as English readers who uh, don't have a a lot of familiarity with the Old Testament, um, we read that and we think, well, God likes the smell of meat cooking, right? That's a natural way to read this. But there's actually more going on here. And, and, and to, to know what's going on here, we have to remember who Noah is. Do you remember Noah's name that his father Lamech gave him? Genesis 5.29. And Lamech called his name, here's, here's baby Noah, called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now, the name Noah in the Hebrew language means comfort or Relief or rest. And here, Noah, whose name means rest from the work, makes a sacrifice to the Lord on, on what is the equivalent of the day of rest, and the Lord smells this pleasing aroma. Only the word used for pleasing here, you knew this was coming, it's again related to the name of Noah, which means to bring rest or relief or comfort. So there's a, there's a play on words here where, where the Lord smells the Noahic aroma. And the point of that wordplay is that it isn't so much the smell of the cooking meat that pleases the Lord. Right, we need to see this right away. Before you, this is the first time we've seen this in Scripture. We need to know at the very beginning that it's not the smell of cooking meat that pleases the Lord, but the faith of the man making the sacrifice. That's what satisfies the Lord. So before we go one step further, that's something we need to understand about this whole sacrificial system. Because this is, it's being introduced here in the Bible for us as something we haven't seen yet, except for in Cain and Abel. We need to understand what's happening here. Where did these animals come from that Noah is sacrificing? They came from the ark. Remember, and God had specifically commanded Noah to bring these additional clean animals. We didn't even know what that meant yet. Noah perhaps didn't even know what it meant, but he knew that there was going to be seven pairs of the clean animals. 
And God brought these animals to Noah to put on the ark. These animals were intended to be used in making sacrifices to the Lord. Otherwise, there's no distinction between clean and unclean. So God has provided these sacrifices. They belong to him already. Noah has only had the responsibility to keep them alive on the ark. But they're God's animals. It's it's God's creation. So when Noah offers these animals back to the Lord on the Sabbath day, it's not like Noah is taking from his own stock. Noah doesn't have anything, right? It all belongs to the Lord. It's all the Lord's. Noah is just acknowledging that reality here. He's responding to the Lord's provision in worship, and he's giving to God what God had entrusted to him to just hold on to. And it's this show of faith that is pleasing to the Lord. Right? So this is the very beginning. I didn't even give you an introduction today. We don't have time for one because there's a lot in the text today. But that, that's, that's the first big thing that we're supposed to see, Noah giving sacrifices back to God that already belonged to God. And I think you know that as Christians, we don't make animal sacrifices. We're not supposed to, at least. Jesus is the final blood sacrifice. We'll talk, talk about that in just a little bit, but there are sacrifices that the New Testament teaches that we are to offer in worship to God. That's why we read Hebrews 13 today. Now, now why is that necessary? Why, do, why, are, why is it necessary that we would offer sacrifices to God? And what are these sacrifices? Well, if we follow the Bible's logic, what we've seen just in this first one and a half verses. We, we, we've, saw, we've seen already Jesus is our saving ark, right? We've, I've been preaching that for several weeks now. Jesus is our ark. In, in Jesus Christ, we are redeemed from the wrath of God. Right? We, we, we are brought through God's judgment by being in Christ, crucified, dead, buried, raised to new life with him. We're in Christ. And just as through the ark, Noah received from God these animals that he then offered up to God, in our redemption, we receive Christ's provisions, his, his gifts of righteousness. So through the spirit that we have, because we're on the ark with Christ, we receive Christ's humility, his love for the church, his obedience, his good works, his intercession. We could go on and on. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of those we've received from Christ because we're with him on the ark, on his ark of salvation. The New Testament consistently teaches that we have received these righteous qualities from the Spirit by merit of our being united to Christ, or to keep the metaphor going by being on Christ's ark. They belong to Christ. These qualities belong to Christ, not us. But because we're with Christ, because we're in Christ, we have these qualities that belong to him. And just as Noah offered up the gifts that didn't belong to him, we are to offer up these gifts that don't belong to us. We give them back to God, and that is our sacrifice of praise to him. So, in the Hebrews 13 passage that we read, Hebrews 13, 15, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Now, what is our sacrifice? The apostle says, 
the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The, the, the praise is our sacrifice, and that, that the sacrifice is, is the fruit. So, so we, those who acknowledge the name of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, are to praise God in song and words. And when you sang with us today, you were making a, a, a sacrifice. That was the fruit that you sacrificed. You, you gave it back to God. When you listen to his word, you're, you're making a sacrifice. We are offering up to God what he has already provided for us. And then the preacher goes on in Hebrews, what else is our sacrifice? He says, well, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are, look at that, pleasing to God. So our physical belongings, our money, our homes, our time, we are to share these things, to be generous with them. These are sacrifices pleasing to God. Just like Noah's sacrifice was pleasing to God. Like Noah, all that we have has been given to us by God, so we in worship give it back to him. So, Christian, if you're, if you're a Christian, you give generously. You give to the church for the needs of the church. You give to missionaries for the spread of the gospel. You give to those who are in need. Because all that you have has been given to you by God. But it's not just our physical offerings that please the Lord. Hebrews goes on, what else is our sacrifice? Well, under that umbrella of sacrifices that please the Lord, in Hebrews 13, look at verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. They are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So in Christ, getting back to our, the gifts that we have in Christ, the things that, that by merit of being united to him we have, in Christ, we've been brought into his church and given as a gift from the Lord these shepherds to watch over our souls, to guide us to do what is good and, 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 and to be a means that keep us in the faith. So we respond to this gift with an offering of thanksgiving to the Lord. What does that look like? What does it look like to show thankfulness to the Lord for spiritual shepherds? Let's follow their spiritual guidance. Okay, and there's one more thing that he says is a sacrifice for us. Our prayers, you, you might know this from Revelation, our prayers are the pleasing incense that arises before the Lord. Because in Christ, we've received acceptance before God. Right, That's a gift that we have from Christ by merit of being united to him. We have acceptance before the Lord, and so... We use that acceptance to pray to God. The Lord is then pleased with our prayers. So the, the final request of the apostle in, in Hebrews says, verse 18, pray for us. We're sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. So he's saying, he's saying to pray for us because that is a sacrifice that you make because the access you have to God is something you've been given in Christ. So give it back to God. Pray to him. You ever thought about prayer like this? It's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of praise to God. Your prayers are a pleasing aroma to God. The most honoring thing that you can do with the gift of access to use it. 
And you say, well, Dustin, my heart, I don't know how to do that. My heart feels dry. It's hard for me to pray. When you don't know what to pray, pray the scriptures. They've also been given to you by God. Give them back. Pray the Psalms. Read, just do this. Work your way through the Psalms and and pray out loud. Say the Psalms, three of them in a row, out loud. And let that be your prayer. And gradually, the more you do that, the more your heart will align with the Psalms. So receive the gift of that prayer book from God, pray it back to Him, and use the access that you've been given to God in Christ. If it's any help, I, there, there, I got a box of books um, from Crossway Publishing last week, two weeks ago, and, and one of the, the, the book is called Pray, Praying the Scriptures. If you want a copy of it, come see me. I'll give you a copy of it, and it'll help you. Pray the Scriptures. Make this, let this be something that you work on as a Christian, recognizing that this is one of the ways that you are honoring God. You're making these sacrifices to God. You're pleasing the Lord because you've already been given access to Him in Christ. And shameful plug, shameless plug, come on the 28th and pray with us as a church, right? If you need a ride, ask someone, give them the opportunity to worship the Lord and sacrifice by giving you a ride. And come join us and, and, and pray with us. Let's be, like, let's be like Queen Esther, right? What did Queen Esther do? She seized upon the access that she was given before the king. Let's do that. Well, Noah's heart of sacrifice is one that we are to have as well as Christians because we're in Christ. And that is, there's a lot of good application there, but that's not the point of this text. All right? So that was kind of a little side sermon for you to, to, to whet your appetite. Let's keep going and find what this text really is about. How does the Lord respond to Noah's sacrifice? That's going to get us closer to what's happening here. Genesis 8.21, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, in other words, in response to the sacrifice of the faithful and righteous one, what happens? Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, which is to say, until I fold everything up, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. In other words, the climate of the earth will, until the very end, remain hospitable for the flourishing of humanity. And I will let you make your own climate crisis conclusions from this. I've got bigger fish to fry. Who is the Lord speaking to here? Not Noah, not yet. God says these things in his heart. This is the first time we've seen this. We have not seen anything like this before. We've seen God speak out to the nothingness, let there be, and there was. And we've seen him uh, say to, to the someone's, who are with him, let us make. And we've seen him say to no one in particular, I will blot out man, I'm sorry that I've made him. But we have not seen him speak to himself in his heart. This is new. 
This should jump out to us. This is, this is a striking feature of the text. And what Moses, the author, is showing us is that all the way to the heart of God, at the core of his being, at his very essence, God is merciful. God is merciful. God's heart of mercy here is in contrast to our hearts. At the inner heart of mankind, all the way to the core in the essence of who we are, is what? Evil. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. But God has resolved that in his heart, despite the wickedness of mankind, despite the fact that, that humanity deserves a daily flood, a daily deluge, God has resolved in his heart, he will not give humanity what we deserve. Do you see that? Rather, he will show mercy to humanity and the rest of creation that is under their care. It's a mercy from God that he causes the sun to rise because we do not deserve that. It is a mercy from God that we have summer and what we call winter around here. It's a mercy from God that he causes it to rain when he does and when he stops the rain. The ordering of creation is a mercy from God because of our wickedness. What you, what you and I deserve is to be consumed by the earth itself. But God is saying here, resolving in his merciful heart, that won't happen. That is, after all, consistent with who God is, right? He is merciful. Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, that's, that's God's name, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And we see that here, don't we? But the question I have for you in this text, because it, it just needles at me, is this teaching us, is what God is saying in verse 21 and 22, is this teaching us that God is going to always and forever overlook the wickedness of the human heart? Like he's somehow going to learn to get used to our wickedness? Because as a whole, when we read this text, you might have felt this. It seems that what our text this morning is teaching is something like that. That God is just going to overlook sin from here on out. The wickedness of man's heart, no big deal anymore. Not only do we get verse 21, would we also get that whole rainbow stuff. Verses 8 through 17 are all about God hanging up his bow of judgment. His bow, the things that Bow and arrow, bow, hanging it up. God is making a covenant of peace between him and mankind and the rest of creation. It seems like that's what's happening here. No more judgment. There's a problem with that conclusion, right? Yes, we are, as Christians, we know there's a problem with that conclusion. That Exodus 34 passage that I just read, the beginning of, doesn't end with keeping steadfast love for thousands, it ends like this. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. All right, so this text in Genesis, God is merciful. Exodus 34, when God reveals himself to to Moses, God is merciful and just. And it would be unjust of God to ignore the wickedness of humanity. Our sin must somehow be dealt with. So for anyone who knows the Lord's attributes from Scripture, they would feel a tension in our Genesis text. Yes, God is merciful, but God is just. Where is the justice in this text? Where is it? How can God say he will never again curse the ground because of wicked man? How can he say that? Well, the justice is here in the text, but it's so small that we have to see what Moses is doing here to even notice. Like any good artwork, and that's what this is, Genesis is a literary, true masterpiece. But like any good artwork, the artist is drawing our eye and our attention toward the frame of focus. And to see that, we have to notice the way that the passage that we have paid attention to this morning is arranged. At the beginning of our passage, you have this sacrifice of the faithful and righteous one, the sacrifice which is pleasing to the Lord. Then it is followed by the revelation of God's mercy. Now, based on our reading and what we know is coming, what does it seem like would come after God resolves in his heart to never again bring this type of judgment? It seemed like the rainbow would come next, doesn't it? Or is that just me? If I were writing this, I would make the rainbow come next. One would think that after God makes this resolution in his heart, that then he'd say it out loud for everyone to hear, and then you would get the bow in the clouds and the covenant. The covenant of peace. The, 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 the bow in the clouds and God's covenant logically follow from the resolution God has made in his heart. But that's not what happens. Instead, you get the resolution of mercy in God's heart, despite the wickedness in man's heart, and then you get the reestablishment of of mankind, wicked mankind, as God's image bearers on the earth, and some extra stuff about food and homicide, and then the rainbow covenant. That should strike us as unexpected and odd. Structurally, the way that this morning's passage is written, there's something really important, something central about verses chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Something that the author is focusing our eyes in on, that he wants us to see, and it is somehow related to the promise not to flood on account of man's wickedness. Because that topic, God's mercy, sits there at the beginning, and very clearly at the end, what about the middle? What's going on in the middle It's so important. Well, in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, God is establishing this new world order after the flood. All things have been made new, and here in this new creation order, mankind again are set in place as God's image-bearing rulers. Very, very, very similar to chapter 1 of Genesis. And notice the way that he does this. 
it, is, it follows almost uh, perfectly Genesis chapter 1, but there are some notable differences. We'll take note of those. So in the first creation order in Genesis 1, God creates man in his image, male and female. He blesses them and commands them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Remember? Genesis 1, 26 through 28. They were to have dominion over the birds and the beasts and the fish. And then after that, he, in Genesis 1, 29, 30, and 31, he gives them all the plants of the earth for food. All right, so... Be fruitful and multiply, dominion, and here's your food. Here we are. The earth has been wiped clean, and God is beginning again with the second Adam and his seven family members. And what do we see? You see God's blessing. Look at verse 1, 9 verse 1, God's blessing, command to be fruitful and multiply, and then we also are going to see fill the earth and have dominion. You see that? Verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, exactly like what we see in Genesis chapter 1. And then this, verse 1, 9, 1, is repeated again in verse 7. That, that's important. Hey, you see something repeated in the Scripture? That's important. Take note of it. This tells you that's, that's kind of a theme here. It's at the beginning. It's at the end. It's like the, the bread pieces of a sandwich. Humanity reestablished as God's image-bearing rulers of the earth. Their command to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth with His image. Comes up twice. It's going to come up again when we get to the Tower of Babel. So hold on to that. But but you have the first and the last parts, verse first one and verse seven, both having to do with fruitful multiplication. There's the bread of the sandwich. What's in the middle of the sandwich? Right. What kind of sandwich are we about to eat? Let's keep going. Verse two. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast, bird, and fish. Into your hand they are delivered. Now, I know what you're thinking. This, this, is, this is why rabbits and squirrels run away from little boys with slingshots. And yes, that's, that's true. But there's more to this than that. This is dominion language. Humanity is, is once again being given dominion to rule over the earth. It was kind of a mystery of whether, whether or not that would continue after the flood. God is saying, it will, it shall we see this, this same language, this fear and dread and enemies handed over. We see this later on in the Pentateuch and the first five books of the Bible. Um, when Israel is, is coming out of the Exodus, and they're going into the promised land in Deuteronomy. Look what God says about the nations. It says, this day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you. You see that language? Exactly like what we see in, in chapter 9. Only, only the fear and dread is not upon the beasts, birds, and so on. It's upon what? It's upon people. I will begin to, to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. He's saying he's establishing his kingdom. And these, these will be the rulers. Israel is meant to be the rulers over, over the, over the world. In fact, we don't even have to wait until we get to Israel to see this type of language. Language We, um, we see it in chapter 14 in Genesis. Melchizedek, the priestly king of Salem, which means peace, is going to bless Abram, which, who, who is Abraham, and he'll say this. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has, look at this, delivered your enemies into your hand. 
So the point I want you to see is that the Israelites who first received Genesis, the people who are reading this long before you and I get it, they, they would hear the fear and dread of you and into your hands they are delivered. They would hear that and they would say, oh, this is dominion language. The, the earth is the Lord's and it is, is his to give over to his rulers, his chosen kings. Dominion is being given to humanity again as it was in Genesis 1 and as Psalm 8 teaches. Psalm 8, verse 6, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. All right, that's dominion language. It's exactly what's happening in Genesis 9. It's exactly what happened in Genesis 1. So, so far, we've got be fruitful and multiply and fill, and we have the dominion mandate. Well, how about the food? Because in Genesis 1, God gave food to, to his first man and woman. Well, the food stuff is where it gets kind of interesting. In Genesis 1, after the blessing and the dominion is given to humanity, God gave them all the green plants for food. Here in Genesis 9, the Lord says, Everything. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. It's all the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and he's giving all the plants and all the animals over to humanity to rule over it and to eat it. Now, this is different than Genesis 1, isn't it? In Genesis 1, the animals weren't provided explicitly as food. But... It's the same as Genesis 1 in that God is the one doing the providing. God is the one handing everything over to humanity to rule over and to eat. The picture here is he's opening up his garden and his stockyard this time as well and saying, what's mine is yours. But then he gives this rule. Did you notice this rule? You can eat any of these animals. Owls, ocelots, otters, oxen. It's all yours, but if you're going to eat them, you need to bleed them first. That's that's weird, right? You just acknowledge, this is unusual. Why why is is God saying this? You've got to bleed the animals out before you eat them. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, if if you're you're taking note here, verse 4 is the center of our text. It is the middle of the sandwich. So to answer the question, what kind of sandwich is this? It's a not blood sandwich. So verse 4, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Okay, why? Actually, Genesis doesn't tell us why. But Moses, who wrote Genesis, wrote Leviticus. Leviticus tells us why. And remember, the people who are reading Genesis or are hearing this read to them would have sat there live hearing Leviticus read to them, probably before they heard Genesis. So they've experienced the giving of the law in first person. In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 10, this prohibition against eating blood is repeated. It'll come up again in Deuteronomy, but Leviticus 17 is my my favorite one. So the, 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 the prohibition against eating blood is, or flesh with blood in it is repeated in verse 10 of, of Leviticus 17. And then the reasoning for the prohibition is in verse 11. Leviticus 17, 
Verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. That's almost identical to what we saw in Genesis. But there's more in Leviticus. God says, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Here, here's, here's what he's saying. The meat is food. All right, you, can eat, you can eat the meat. It's yours to eat. I'm giving it to you to nourish your body. But you, a sinner, wicked all the way through to your heart, need your sins covered in order to come before me. Your sins must be atoned for to be in my presence. And God is saying here, I have provided the means for the atonement of your sins. The lifeblood of the animals will cover you. Look at what the Lord says. I've given it for you, which is to say it belongs to the Lord, right? It's his to give. I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. The blood is the life of the animal, and on the altar, through the sprinkling of that blood, the animal's life is given over to cover for the wickedness of man, the sins of man. And there's, if we go back to Genesis, you don't see that word atonement here, do you? There's nothing back here in our Genesis text that says the word atonement. We've seen a sacrifice. We've seen God pleased with a sacrifice. But the word atonement is not here. But atonement is being foreshadowed. It's being foreshadowed by Noah's sacrifice. With this prohibition against eating meat with his lifeblood in it. Let's back up now. God has said he will show mercy, right? We saw that, Genesis 8, 20, 21, 22. He will show mercy. He will not kill all flesh with a flood again on account of human sin, which led us to that question. How will a just God, who by no means clear the guilty, deal with human sin? And what's hinted here in Genesis 9, what's being foreshadowed is this, with, with this unusual prohibition against eating blood, is that God is going to provide a way to deal with human sin. It's in seedling form here. Just a, a little sprout coming out of the ground. But when we get to the law given to, by, to us by Moses, we're going to see that human sin will be dealt with, not with a flood, but by the lifeblood of animals. And we're going to see this little seedling grow up a little bit more in Genesis. In chapter 2, chapter 22, when Abraham goes up on the mountain with Isaac, and God provides a ram in place of Isaac. And then it's going to grow a little bit more when Joseph's life is spared, but a goat is killed. Little by little by little, we're seeing glimpses of how God will provide the means to deal with human sin. And that little sprout has come up right here. Out of this freshly flooded and freshly cleansed earth. You see it? See the good news? The, the title for our Genesis series is this is the dawn of grace. You see the sprout? You see the dawn of grace? Do you see God's grace here? God will provide the way. But I'm getting ahead. Let's go on to verse 5 because we've got to get all the way through the end of this. Verse 5, and for your lifeblood, 
He just talked about the lifeblood of animals. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his image. So here we have that, this repeated refrain again and again and again. God requires a reckoning for the lifeblood of man. Why? Because human life belongs to God. Just as the lifeblood of the animals belongs to God on the altar for our atonement, our entire life belongs to God. Human life belongs to God. Humans are God's representatives. We are his image bearers on the earth. We do not bear our own image. We bear his image. We are to spread his glory across the earth. So if you take a human life, yes, you're guilty of hurting that person in a way that cannot be repaid. Yes, you're guilty of hurting that person's family in a way that cannot be repaid. But even more so, you are guilty of destroying an image bearer of God. This is why David, after he has Uriah killed, cries out to God in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. He's destroyed an image bearer of God. Now the reason why this new law against homicide is at this place in the text is this. In the first creation... The first notable event when humanity exited the garden or was cast out of the garden was what? Cain killed Abel. And then remember, Abel's blood was crying out from the ground. Blood is just all over the Bible, isn't it? Well, here in the new creation, God is putting in place a deterrent, and it's meant to prevent such a murder from happening again. When the Lord says, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning, literally he's saying from his brother, I will require a reckoning. That word brother is meant to be an echo of Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. And makes sense, right? Shem, Ham, and Japheth are the only guys, aside from Noah, alive here. So if one of them kills the other, it's got to be the brother who's the avenger. So from, from your fellow brother, from your fellow man, what God is teaching us here. It's just, this is clear. What God is teaching is just how important human life is to him. He commands humanity to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He wants a lot of humans. They're important to him. He puts humanity in place as rulers over his earth. He subjects all of living creation under humanity. And then he provides everything in creation to his Precious humanity as food. And then he repeats, you are my image bearers. Humanity is without a doubt the apple of God's eye and the means through which he will accomplish his purposes on the earth. So when God makes this law against homicide, it's yet another expression of his special concern for humanity. God is providing a protection, a common grace protection for humanity that no other living being is given. This law is meant to be an expression, another expression of God's love, His mercy. 
towards humanity. He upholds, he promises, I'm going to uphold the natural laws, so never again will the earth be used to destroy all flesh. Why? Because his aim is to preserve human life. And then he institutes this divine law, gives it to man, so that never again will humanity be allowed to destroy itself. Because his aim is to preserve human life. Why? What is man that God is so mindful of him? Well, it's through humanity that God will bring his redemption. Remember I told you, when we went through Genesis chapter 3 and we got to verse 15, I said, we will look at that verse every single time we're in Genesis. And here it is again. God made a promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and he will keep that promise. And here he is fixing means through which that promise can be fulfilled. The seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, will be the one who ultimately brings redemption and restoration of all things. And God is foreshadowing here in the middle of our text that even still, it is that offspring who is to have dominion over all the earth. God will put all things under his feet. And at the same time, related to this issue of dominion, there's the hint that this will ultimately be accomplished through some sort of atoning sacrifice. You see how this is all kind of foreshadowing? We're just seeing, we're, we're seeing the tip of the shadow that is fulfilled in Christ. But now, with all of that, we can, we can get to the rainbow. The moment you've been waiting for. Now, now that we know that sin will be dealt with, or at least we have the hint that it will be dealt with, now we can understand the rainbow covenant. Verses 8 through 17, uh, you might notice, is another sandwich. I'm hungry today. We, we have at the beginning... Uh, verse 8, I will establish my covenant with you, verses 8 and 9, and your offspring after you and every living being. And then at the end, in verse 17, I think it is, this is the sign of the covenant I've established between you and me and all the earth. Right? So you've got another covenant sandwich. Uh, so the top piece of bread, the bottom piece of bread are the same. What's in the middle? We're asking that question again. Well, what's in the middle is it's, it's a rainbow this time. It's a rainbow sandwich. You see that same thing we saw at the end of chapter 8? Uh, at the beginning here, um, God is saying out loud this time, I will never again strike every living creature as I have done. Right? We saw that at the end of chapter 8. Now he's saying it out loud. And then how do we know that God is going to keep his promise? Verses 13 and following, I set my bow in the cloud. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, the bow is seen in the clouds. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all the earth. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. So we see the rainbow here. And it's like this. What, what, what is being described is this big, bright, shining bow of peace. And what's really explicit in the Hebrew language, and it comes out in the English as well, it's, it's not that this is just a rainbow. This is God's war bow. God is literally hanging up his bow, that instrument of judgment with which he judged the world in the flood. He's hanging it up. Psalm 144 says the heavens are God's bow and the lightning are his arrows. God's hanging up the bow forever for all future generations. That's what the rainbow represents. 
That's how we are to see it. And remember it, it's because we see it that way because that's how God sees it. And that's how he remembers his promise. But let's go back. On what basis can God make this promise? How can he say he will never again destroy all the, that is in the earth with a flood? He can do this and be just and merciful because God is going to provide the means through which sin will be atoned for. Full circle. That's why the blood stuff is right there in the center of all of this text. That little seedling of atonement right in the middle of this passage that we read about man being given dominion over the earth. See, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7 provide the basis, the, the grounding for the covenant of peace that is signified in the rainbow. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in who? In Christ Jesus. Christ isn't his name, it's a title. And it means he's the one that all dominion has been given to. All creation has been subjected to him. All things have been put under his feet. And he gives us redemption. How? Well, God put him forward as a propitiation, which means an atoning sacrifice. By his blood, his blood again, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Felt like that, didn't it? God was passing over former sins, that he was overlooking the wickedness that is in man's heart. And Paul says, no. In his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's what our passage is pointing to. God cannot give us the rainbow if he does not already have planned in his eternal plan of redemption, the cross. 